Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. As some of you may know, over the past couple of years, I've done several webinars and video lectures on a variety of topics that also come up on this podcast. There is unfortunately a lack of qualified therapists who specialize in working with cult survivors and their concerned family members. And since I can only see a finite number of clients myself, I wanted to share insights from my 30 plus years of doing this work with as many people as possible. So in pursuit of that goal, I've made all of my recent video lectures available on my website, rachelbernsteintherapy.com. You can find a link to the page in the show notes of this episode. There you'll find my lecture from the most recent conference of the International Cultic Studies Association, my, quote, Living in Freedom, unquote, series for survivors and their family members, and my recent lecture entitled Why Did I Stay?, which examines the many reasons that people have difficulty leaving high-control groups. We plan on adding more video lectures in the near future, so if you have topics you'd like to hear me cover, please feel free to reach out to us and make suggestions. I wanted to do a special shout-out to our many listeners of the last few podcasts in Canada, in Australia, Russia, and New Zealand. Again, be in touch if you're from any of those areas and want to let us know what the interest is in your country or in your heart. And for this week, our special guest is Lamont Lindstrom. He's an emeritus professor and former chair of anthropology at the University of Tulsa, where he also served as associate dean of the Henry Kendall College of Arts and Sciences. Lindstrom has taught courses in sociolinguistics and anthropology at Rhodes College in Memphis, the University of Papua New Guinea, and UC Berkeley. Lamont has long-term research interests in Vanuatu and other Melanesian countries and has written several books on these subjects. His latest book, Tana Times, Islanders in the World, was published in 2021. He is also the author of the fascinating book, about the phenomenon of cargo cults entitled Cargo Cult, Strange Stories of Desire from Melanesia and Beyond. Professor Lindstrom has had many visiting fellowships throughout his academic career, including at the East-West Center in Honolulu, the Center for Pacific Island Studies at the University of Hawaii, and the Macmillan Brown Center for Pacific Studies at Canterbury University. He has a lot of credentials. And he has a lot of information. Here is our guest for today, Lamont Lindstrom. I am so excited to have Professor Lamont Lindstrom with us today. It is very, very interesting when 
your world gets opened up to something really new to you. I mean, I've been doing this work for over 30 years. This is a term that for whatever reason or reasons has not come across my field, my eyes quite yet. And this was something introduced by the team to me, the podcast team, as this thing that has existed for a while, the, a subculture, I almost want to say a subculture within a subculture with this sort of multi-layered. Before we get into the topic for today, though, I would love for you, Lamont, to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about you, what you do, and what you did. And then we will start talking about this fascinating subject. Go for it. Okay. I grew up in Martinez, California. I went through the University of California system. First couple of years, I was at UC Santa Cruz, and there was a center for Pacific Studies there and some excellent teachers. So I got interested. I like to travel. So I got interested in something involving the anthropology or the ethnography, the culture of the Pacific and kept going and going and eventually ended up in a beautiful but strange place. It was a chain of islands called the New Hebrides, which are located between Fiji and Queensland, Australia. 80 islands, uh, over about a thousand miles. The population today is still only about 320,000, but it's got 139 different languages. So linguistically and culturally, very interesting and, and complex. I started doing research as a young, know-nothing um, student on a southern island called Tana, which was a bit known at the time for having a so-called cargo cult or a, a local religious movement. And that was one of the things that I got interested in. Came back from there, uh, ended up with a job in Memphis, Tennessee, then here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I've just retired from the University of Tulsa after 40 years here. And uh, over the 40 years, uh, as often as I could, I would go back to Vanuatu because in 1980, the New Hebrides, which was a colony of Great Britain and France uh, together, it was a condominium at the time. It became independent in 1980. And I kept going back because it's just a great place for anthropology and for linguists. And the people are fantastic and very friendly. So um, over the years, I, I cooked up a bunch of research um, Projects uh, that would keep me going back on a number of different things, on a traditional drug substance called kava, on what's happening with leaders or chiefs today. Uh, Americans during the war had two big bases in, in, in the chain, in the archipelago. So we did some World War II ethnic history. Uh, I did a dictionary and a grammar, and then also a book on this, uh, this notion of the cargo cult. Since the one of the movements that started there in the 1930s, and it's still going today. It's one of the few that have um, survived through various reasons. So um, I was just there earlier this year um, for my annual COPPA vacation, and I'm hoping um, to make it back there next year. Mm, really nice. Really nice. So before we dive into this subject, and it sounds like you're you've had so many incredible experiences, and yes, travel experiences too, and being able to teach, being able to learn, being able to be immersed in different cultures. I mean, it sounds really so incredibly interesting. And to be focused on a certain part of the world that not a lot of people have seen. And 
uh, I think it's interesting if we get into the idea of cargo cults, if I don't know if there's a way to define it in in a short way, because it's so, again, multi-layered, but how would you define a cargo cult? Throughout the 20th century and even before, up until the colonies in the Southwest Pacific started becoming independent in the 1970s and finally 1980, there were a variety of um, kind of protest movements, social, economic, political protest movements. Um, nobody likes to be under the thumb of a colonizer. And as I said, Vanuatu and New Hebrides at the time was run by the French and the British together. But uh, the neighboring countries are Papua New Guinea, Irian Jaya, or Indonesian Papua, Solomon Islands, uh, Fiji, and uh, New Caledonia, Nuba Caledonia, which is still a French colony. These kind of anti-colonial movements, or I like to call them globalization movements, uh, popped up, and most didn't last, but there were several hundred of them, and they drove the uh, colonial authorities crazy. And they were called a number of different things. But in 1945, the term cargo cult appeared in a, in a colonial Australian colonial news magazine called Pacific Islands Monthly in a letter written by this kind of, uh, kind of white supremacist, crazy Australian planter who wrote into the magazine complaining about cargo cult as, as a kind of consequence of the disruptions of the war, the Pacific War. Back in the late 1980s, I spent months in the University of Hawaii Pacific collection trying to find out when the first the first um, instance of uh, the term cargo cult appeared in print, and it was in this 1945 letter. Anthropologists then borrowed the term um, to describe these movements, which the war had stoked. And right after the war, the colonists or the colonialists were getting kind of back into place. The British had run away out of the Solomons and mostly out of Vanuatu. The Australians had had run off from most of New Guinea. So they were trying to reassert their authority after the war. And people didn't like it. So there were, again, more of these protest movements. And there were anthropologists out there for the first time, or mostly the first time, to describe um, some of these movements. And so anthropology, my discipline, borrowed this term from kind of the plantation community. But within about 10 years, uh, most anthropologists said, oh, no, it's not a very nice term. These aren't really about cargo. They aren't really about cult. Uh, we should call them something else. But the term then kind of escaped anthropology, and you still see it circulating around in a whole lot of different arenas today where people use it to uh, mostly uh, insult and castigate their enemies that, oh, these uh, computer programmers are nothing but cargo cult programmers are these politicians are nothing but cargo politicians, or these economists are nothing but cargo politicians. So what do they mean by that? They mean people who are, are working to achieve some some goal, you know, some understandable goal, but they're using um, bad methods, right? The classic cargo cult were a bunch of kind of poorly educated Pacific Islanders who wanted the wealth and the riches that they had experienced um, especially during the Pacific War, jeeps, trucks, money, tin peaches, and they turned a ritual in order to uh, get the cargo. And cargo is a pidgin English term. Pidgin English is was one of the kind of trade languages or the lingua francas of uh, this region of New Guinea, of Solomons, of uh, New Hebrides. 
Uh, and the word cargo or cargo uh, meant stuff, meant things, meant possessions. So these, so the early anthropologists that right after the war used borrowed the term and said, okay, these are kind of social movements where people are trying to get their hands on manufactured goods. Uh, or sometimes freedom or sometimes religious salvation. And they were doing that in a couple of different ways. One is to evoke their ancestors and uh, become a nativist. It's if only we could go back to what our life was like before these horrible white people showed up and pushed us around, then our ancestors would bring us this wealth that the Europeans had stolen. Or they said, oh, we need to... It became kind of anti-nativist. We need to trash everything that we do. We need to ditch our culture. We need to pick up these new ways. And that's the way that we'll become rich. So the term then was useful for about 10 years in anthropology, although you still see it floating around today to describe these movements of people who were desperate to change their lives. And, and there was a prophet, usually a prophet who appeared and said, this is what we need to do just to go back to the old ways or dump the old ways, either one or the other. And um, suddenly the ancestors will make you rich. Or sometimes in places where the American military was, uh, the Americans will return. Because the U.S. had pulled out of the region, most of the region, in 1946. The Americans, American submarines and planes will come back, and uh, they'll be full of uh, good stuff. And more than that, they'll, they'll kick the butts of the French and the British and the Australians and run them out of the place, and uh, our lives will be wonderful. So most of these movements, they lasted a little bit, and then nothing happened, and people got discouraged, and you know they went back to normal lives. But a few of them uh, became, there's a fancy sociological term that the uh, German uh, social scientist Max Weber invented back in the 1880s, 1890s, called institutionalization. They, were, they, be, they turned themselves into local churches or local political parties by coming up with ways to replace prophets and leaders who died off or got arrested. And um, a few of the movements, like the one on Tana, the island I've been going back and forth to for many years, um, still exist because they've, uh, they've managed to kind of no more convert themselves away from just a kind of a bunch of people following a prophet to something much more like a church or a party, a political party. So um, I've made fun of the term in a book I wrote, um, but I also was interested in all of the... So anthropologists just said, no, we're really sorry we used the word. Uh, it's too insulting. I mean, it, things are much more complicated. Uh, things weren't... The people weren't really cultist in the way that we understand them, and they, they had much more in mind than just the getting their hands on our Jeeps and our airplanes and our whatever. Uh, so we don't want to use the term anymore. But um, outside of anthropology, if you just Google it, you'll find it all over the place. So a lot of non-anthropologists like the term. And uh, they, they, as I said before, they um, they abuse their, uh, their enemies and they disparage uh, people whose plans they don't like, basically. Okay, right. I mean, I think what is interesting, I guess, is to redefine it. And to understand what cargo means symbolically, literally and symbolically, taking on the symbols and the strength of that and what they represent. And that happens a lot when, you know, you see 
certain, even certain cult groups where the leadership is going to, you know, they'll wear long white robes because that is symbolic of some kind of purity or taking on the costume of someone who they look up to or they want to seem like. There's There are a lot of people who will try to represent themselves in certain ways, but also will see meaning in symbols and strength in it, hope, connection. It was very interesting to see because we track where the podcast is listened to. And I know Rob, our producer, really will keep track of, you know, in tiny places around the world or towns in the United States that we may have not heard of or be familiar with. Suddenly there's a really big listenership and we want to try to figure out what is happening there that's causing people to be interested. And suddenly on this list of places where people are listening and great greater numbers of people are listening, suddenly I see the name Vanuatu. And I think, I'm not even sure if I know where that is. So we look it up and there were about 2,000 plus listeners. And we thought, what is that about? Because the population is really small there. I mean, relatively speaking, it's, I think, over 300,000, but um, not anywhere near like the millions of people in other places. So percentage-wise, it was big listenership. And so I think that there is an interest there in trying to figure out about groupthink and belief and if something also could be used as a method of control or sometimes even deception, that you think something might be true or magic is involved in something and you find out that it might not be magical. It reminds me of um, of Peter Pan and the Lost Boys. I think about, you know, how Peter Pan was the, the leader of the group and they had their own belief system and magic. And so I think it is a very powerful tool of connection. But also, I think for people to believe that if they believe something or imbue something with a certain kind of power that then, or magic, that then life will be better or life will be easier, potentially. And I wonder how much of that is the case in the places that you've seen and that that's what the the connection is is about for them. I can't guess who your 2,000 listeners could have been in Vanuatu because it is a fairly small place, 320,000 people maybe, although everybody's on Facebook virtually and uh, many people have uh, smartphones, so they certainly could listen in. These uh, movements, um, kind of globalization movements or anti-colonial movements, um, mostly have faded away since uh, Vanuatu became independent in 1980 and the other, most of the other Melanesian countries uh, a few years before that. So, but people still have a fairly deep desire to better their life. Change is good. And a lot of the energy that went into these movements then have has flooded into um, people joining up with new Pentecostal and evangelical Christian missions that have poured into poured into the region uh, since the 1980s. But it's not just the Christians, Baha'is there. A few people in Vanuatu decided they should become Muslim. So people in this country are always, they're seekers, right? So they're always looking for the truth. And their their ears are always open to some attractive prophet of one sort or another, whether it's a missionary from Australia 
or a local guy who just gets an inspiration from some ancestor. So maybe no surprise. I mean, their eyes are open and their ears are open for any, you know, avenues or, or ways forward to, to make their life better. So the old classic, what anthropologists call the carbo cults have mostly gone away, except for the John Frum movement on Tano, which, as I said, has become institutionalized into a local church. Uh, the Nagriamel movement on Spiritu Santo Island, which has become a kind of political party. But a lot of people have left the colonial era missions. There were the, the big ones are the Presbyterians, the Anglicans, the Catholics, Seventh-day Adventists, Church of Christ a, a bit later, uh, and have um, joined up with uh, some of the newer um, groups that have um, come through the country, you know, looking for looking for converts. So who knows? It might be a local prophet, of which there's still many in this country, has uh, found your podcast and has uh, recommended it to followers. I haven't heard, but it could be true. Yeah, it might be. I don't know. I, I don't know where the interest began or how word spread about it, but I'm glad that it's been potentially helpful for people there. I'm wondering also if there are particular, I, I guess, traditions and symbols or prayers or mm, the way people go about practicing the belief system that you were witness to in, in any of your travels that you could describe for us and what that might have looked like? Well, I mean, m most people are at least nominally Christian in this country and in this whole region and have been for some generations, although they're happy to dump one denomination and join up with another one. But underneath that Christianity, um, you know, traditional Melanesian religious uh, belief systems are so strong and powerful. And uh, the most important uh, spirit figures are one's ancestors, uh, your dead parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. And they still speak to people. And sometimes you meet them at night on a forest trail, but particularly in your dreams. So. People are not big fans of creativity. If you say, oh, I just had a good idea because I'm a good thinker, I'm a genius or whatever, nobody's going to pay much attention to it. They much prefer inspiration. So if they say, oh, I had a dream last night and my grandmother came to me and she said, we should try this new dance or she's taught me a new song or um, I have to come up with a new way to weave a basket or whatever, then everybody's all excited because that kind of knowledge, inspirational knowledge, is far more valued and important than stupid Western creativity. Nobody cares much for creativity in, in this part of the world. So if you're going to be someone, if people, if people, if you want people to listen to you, you have to be inspired. You have to have connection. And sometimes it's connection with your ancestral dead, or sometimes it's connection with some Christian mission or whatever or some other outside agency, but it's got to come in from the outside in order to make what you say uh, worthy, you know, for anybody to pay attention to or to listen to. So the place is crawling with, you know, both outside missions and local guys and some women too, who um, have good spiritual connection and get messages from you know, the other side, as they say, where, you know, where ancestors and spirits and the truth reside. Right. You know, I I think it is really 
interesting too when it, something that originates from inside of you is not given as much credence or even interest as a message that you're receiving from an outside source and because of doing this work i'm i see the potential grifter part of this where there could be a pitfall where someone can come in and say i can interpret the messages of your ancestors or i can help you with this or i hear what they're saying to you and for a fee or for whatever and that's a lot of times what happens with people who go in for psychic readings and you know are taken advantage of and i don't know if that has also been an issue or if it really has stayed a very personal interpretation without the reaching out to anyone to assist you. I mean, some of these movements, you know, they they were fairly totalitarian, right? So 24-7 sometimes where they do try to disconnect you from your other relationships and your previous life and they want all your time and all of your attention. And yeah, the prophets were not nice guys, typically, and often they would collect a bunch of young girls as sexual partners, and they would, especially the ones that were saying, oh, we need to break all the old traditions and taboos, we need to do this new stuff. And they had police forces sometimes on Tana, so um, the, the movement on Tana was, it's also a complicated story, but there was a spirit figure named John Frum, nobody really knows where the name came from, and um the local men, there were one or two women, but they were mostly men who said that they could monopolize John Fromm's message, that they they were the ones who were in tune with him. So you had to go through them to get the spirit message. They created police forces, and if you um, got on, you know, if you challenged them, they they would send their young thugs out to beat you up. So yeah, some of these some of these movements were. Pretty rough, basically. If they got too rough, people could just leave and take off. But if you were, you know, a faithful follower, if you were really hoping to change your life, you sometimes would put up with these characters. They weren't all like that. Some of them, they healed, which is pretty typical. Um, they uh, sometimes would offer helpful advice. But the, the figure of the prophet, you know, was, was always kind of ambiguous. And during the colonial era, it would drive the colonial authorities crazy, and they would. Many of them were arrested, and, you know, deported, exiled, and they they blamed uh, these tricky, sneaky uh, prophetic leaders for misleading or duping, you know, the poorly educated islanders. Basically, of course, it was much more complicated than that. But so during the colonial era, a lot of these movements were repressed. If the authorities knew about them, sometimes with good reason, you know, and sometimes I just didn't want a, cha- a local challenge, you know, from the people they wanted to rule over. Right. Right. And so I wonder about John from, and, you know, I mean, I, I think that when the person who you're following, the person who is the leader of a particular mystical movement is not a real person. I think that's actually helpful to the movement because you can create him as you go. There isn't a way to verify if what you're saying about him or his history or his personality or his powers is true or untrue. Do you think that that holds some power here? 
Yeah, and these these were until recently these cultures had no writing, so they didn't have any sacred texts. So there is no Bible or Quran or anything that stood in the way of somebody coming up with a new interpretation. The movement leaders typically tried to monopolize, you know, the spirit voices. On Tana, this island, all the men, but no women, until maybe recently, would drink kava every night. It's it's a nice specific traditional drug substance, which is popular now in the United States. It's not um, hallucinogenic, but it it gives you nice, peaceful feelings, and uh, and it doesn't last very long. But during the time when you're experiencing kava, everybody on the island, everybody stops talking and they start listening to ancestors. So it's a time to receive inspiration. And the guys monopolized it. They wouldn't let the women drink kava because they didn't want the women making trouble with any spirit, any spirit communications. But they can't prevent dreaming. So the women sometimes would get their say in having dreams that the men could not control. So unlike a a movement or a religious movement someplace else where there may be a sacred text and you know it's written in Latin and you're you're the only one who can read Latin, so everybody has to put up with you. These are much more open movements and more fragile in you know in that way. In that yeah, John Frum was a spirit, as far as anybody knows, and um hard to uh, monopolize connection with him and that he could come to talk to anybody. Which is a good thing, because if you have some creepy prophet who's just making too much trouble, I mean, somebody else gets a message saying, John Crumb says, kill him. And you can get rid of that one and, you know, come up with a better leader. I find that very interesting, too, when you're mentioning about the women, the women finding a way to also be seers, to have some kind of power here to decipher, to you know, have their visions included in because it seems very male-centered. So they seems that they found a way to insert themselves into this, which is really interesting to hear. Yeah, um, it's one of the options, a few options they have. I mean, this part of the world, this part of Melanesia is, is pretty patriarchal. And, you know, women's lives are much more controlled than men's lives are. Even you know, in contemporary politics, there's only been a couple of women elected to Vanuatu's national parliament over the years. It's the guys hog, you know, all of the resources and all the credit, and it's hard for women to uh, kind of um, break through. But um, yeah, if they can dream and if they can circulate their messages, then it, then that's a possibility. And the same thing happened in the in the history of American religion. Christian Science, um, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. I think the Shakers um, had female prophets who had a kind of personal connection to God and that could kind of uh, detour around or go around the, the normal male control over Christianity. But then, the same thing on Tana. Um, the men could travel in 19th century America. They could hop a horse again again, whatever, the women had a much harder time of, a much harder, in movies, so it's hard to spread the message if you can't travel, you know, before the telephone was invented. So all of those American prophetesses, if I can say the word, uh, prophets kind of relied on male kin to spread their message that they were receiving from God. And same thing, same thing in Bonawatu, same thing on Tana. 
and then if you're a woman and people start listening to you because you're saying interesting things that are coming from somebody often you have to rely on men to do the do the message spreading because um, your social space is much more restricted to your brothers or your husbands so the women are not completely equal but there is some chance that um, they they do get a voice in in these kind of inspirational systems right which is good to hear and i i hope for more for them of course uh and equality i don't know when if and when that will happen but that would be a lovely thing i know also when you're dealing with indigenous peoples where there is a rich culture that is sometimes just not Mm, valued by people coming in wanting to save them as though they need saving. I mean, this is something, you know, being Jewish, this is something I deal with a lot. People coming to save me, coming to my door a lot to try to save me like this week. You know, it's not like it happened years ago. It happens all the time. Um, And there is this supposition that you are not safe with your belief system, that you are not complete somehow and you need saving. I There was a family who came to actually a Hanukkah party I was having at the house. They were uh, parents of someone, like one of my kids was dating for a minute, but um, turns out that they met being missionaries in uh, Papua New Guinea. And I didn't know that's where they were going to be going with the story, but they were talking about how they met and on this island and how it was so beautiful to see the culture and to learn about the culture. And then it went right into, and then we brought Jesus into their lives and we were able to keep them pure. And I thought, okay, well, I like the beginning of this story much more than the end of it, um, because there was really this support for, at the beginning, for the people to meet them where they were and to appreciate what they had. Um, but it sounds like with your, you're talking about so many different belief systems coming in that the people or peoples in this area have dealt with being changed a lot. And so I just wonder about the indigenous traditions and if they have been able to really keep a stronghold still and still be in their pure form unencumbered by or unaffected by these other beliefs what what do you find there in that area you know there's been a lot of change these islands were well, the portuguese uh, explorer quiros and then the french bougainville went through and then but james cook british james cook came through in 1774 and then the place started to fill up with whalers and uh, traders or collecting sandalwood that they would bring up to China and exchange with tea. And then the mission started to come in in 1849. And, you know, by the 1920s, most people were Christian, although they had maintained some fairly strong beliefs in, you know, pre-Christian um, spirits. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, with the new missions coming in after 1980, it's like, hey, I'm already a Christian. Why are you bugging me? But as I said before, people are always open for a new message that may, you know, lead to a better future. So they're not all that faithful in their affiliation sometimes that if your new message is better than the one that, you know, I got from my parents, okay, I'll run off and follow you. The early, the Presbyterians and to some extent the Anglicans and the Catholics, I mean, 
they picked up on kind of patriarchy and, and uh, as a reason to convert people that, oh, these people are savages. Um, and, you know, they need to know about Jesus, of course, but particularly they don't, they mistreat their women, right? So the women do all of the work. The guys just kind of walk around with bows and arrows and leaving, uh, you know, leaving all of the gardening and the farming to their wives. And uh, we really need to kind of not only convert them, but we need to teach them the nuclear family. And we need, to, we need to rebuild their houses and put the woman back inside the house where she's just doing the cooking and some sewing. And uh, they uh, raise money, you know. So I'm not only um, saving people, telling them about Jesus, so sending your Sunday school donations, but I'm, um, I'm improving the life of women, you know, who are betrodden and uh, underappreciated in, in these savage cultures. That was 19th century talk. Basically, the newer churches, you know, when Vanuatu was co- coming towards or New Hebrides were was heading towards independence, so there was a kind of revitalization of tradition or custom. It's called in English, and they had to do something with 139 languages. So, you know, what do they all have in common? Well, we all have our own custom. So, they kind of reversed or reevaluated that uh, previous kind of European religious uh, degradation, just what's a good word, um, condemnation of uh, tradition, saying no tradition is a good thing. Most of our traditions are a good thing, is what they said. So the newer churches, they have to walk a fine line. I mean, they can't be too mean to Vanuatu tradition. They don't like the spirits much. But a lot of them put up with kava drinking. The old churches didn't like for a long time. Um, They put up with dancing which the old churches didn't like for a long time. And so there's been a kind of reversal. Now the Presbyterians and the Catholics and the Anglicans, they're happy with coffee drinking and they're happy with the uh, custom dances and they're happy with the uh, male circumcision and all of the stuff that, you know, still survives today. But, you know, the apostolics and the four square gospels and the, oh, you know, the, the 20 or 30 newer missions are, so kind of gone back to the old 19th century message of the tradition is is often wrong, and you need to not only change your religion, you need to um, uh, become like white people, basically, is what they tell. So, yeah, they're, they're not only knocking on your door, <laughs> they're knocking on doors throughout the Pacific. <laughs> Incredible. I know, you know, also where where there are things happening in the world and in nature that seem uh, mysterious that overwhelm people they want to know what what's causing it what what the answer is and i know on tana there's an active volcano so i think about people who have for millennia wanted to understand why a volcano erupts and if it is a sign and why certain people get hurt when things like that happen and others don't. And that that's also been woven into spiritual tradition about some, there are people who are rewarded and people who are punished and nature is, you know, part of that um, and sending out that sign to people that they've done things right or they've done things wrong or that religion will be or spirituality will be a way to protect yourself. From this, but I I see it really as sort of this answer to the question why so often to the and the answer to the kind of unanswerables, and so 
for a place that is so connected to its natural world, have you found that as part of the tradition that there is a reason given for these sorts of things? Yeah, I mean, a lot of these cultures all around the world, not just this part of the Pacific, people are not fans of coincidence or luck. So why did the tree, the coconut tree, fall on my mom? You might just say, oh, bad luck, (laughs) chance. Yeah, they are look they do look for answers and they not only blame themselves that mom might have done something which pissed off some ancestor and made the coconut tree fall on her, but um there's still a fairly powerful fear of what anthropologists call sorcery in this part of the world. And during that, most people became Christian in town in 1910, 1920. And part of that, they gave up these power stones they had. And if you had the right power stone, you could control the wind, you can control the eruption of the volcano, you can control the growth of crops, you can control the growth of pigs, you can make women pregnant, you can call sharks. So they had power stones for everything. And then in the 1970s, when custom or tradition became a good thing again, it's like, oh, my stupid grandfather gave up his power stones that controlled Taro um, when he converted. Now what am I going to do? But stupid grandfather then appears in your dream and says, dig here. And you dig, and it's a volcanic island. So you find some nice rocks. And so a lot of these, Nukwenari, uh, they're called, a lot of these power stones have been uh, revived. And now people will blame one another. And the one that they haven't revived is the one that can kill people. So they had one that will kill people, make, make you sick. Sorcery stone. And if they hear of anybody reviving that one, they'll beat them up sometimes. But the ones that control crops and pigs and chickens and the winds and even the volcanic ashfall, um, people will hint that they have. They've um, revived, they've reinvented how to, how to use them. So, yeah, the nutritious don't like this either because only God can make people sick or, you know, only nature controls the winds. Uh, but people on Donna, you know, fairly easily believe that there may be somebody behind it with the right kind of stone that is controlling what this is. And they like the, vol- the volcano as a blessing and a curse. Um, it's a stromboli type, which means it just shoots ash and lava bombs straight up, and almost all of them fall straight back down again. Once in a while, in a heavy wind, they'll fall over the side of the caldera, and they've squished or killed a few tourists. But they're... Somebody on the island, nobody is quite sure who is making tons of money because they charge about a hundred dollars, almost a hundred per tourist to go up to but this thing. And it's, it's fantastic at night because this is blowing up every five minutes. And these uh, red hot lava things go up and they go down. So it brings in lots of tourists and their money to the island, but it's also spewing just ash constantly and the people I lived with it are lo- located to the east of the volcano. The winds mostly come from the southeast, so the ash mostly goes and falls on their enemies over on the other side of the volcano, so they're happy about that. But sometimes you get a north wind and then volcanic ash. It's a good thing in small doses because it can fertilize one's garden and, or one's farm, and kind of very fertile that they can use the same land over and over again because ash is falling down from the volcano. But if they get like an inch of ash 
it will kill most of the plants and uh, it's bad news. So yeah, every time there's heavy ashfall, people are suspicious that some guy who's got the windstone has used it to, you know, get back at them for some reason. So yeah, they're good at coming up with explanations for why questions. We might not like it, but we'll say, well, some horrible coincidence or just bad luck or God works in mysterious ways, who knows, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't work in a lot of the world, including this this country, that no, there's something underneath. And I see there's something that you did which pissed off powerful spirits, or maybe God, or some other person who's um, harming you. So, so talking about these power stones, I find this all really fascinating because this is also something that can be marketed. And I think because I've seen the other side of this so often where people are going to sell them or you have to do something for someone in order for them to give it to you. Or I, I feel like people could really take advantage of this. And so often people also you know, have certain belief in certain crystals, certain quartz, and they have imbued them with certain powers. And like talismans, you know, this kind of way of keeping you safe. So what are these power stones? Are they things that people find? Are they things that people purchase? And what do they look like? They haven't commercialized them yet. Actually, it's a bit more control on this island, on Tana. In that boys get every family has a set of boys' names, so you can't you can't theoretically invent a new name. You have to use names that your family owns. And each of these boys' names come with land, so like a land, and they come with rights, including the right to use this or that power stone. So I couldn't just buy a, the East Wind Stone because I don't have the right personal name, you know, that gives me rights to use that East East Windstone. So it's a, yeah, in a kind of tropical environment, most things don't last. Everything, mildews and rats and goes away, except for stone. So stone is really important in that it can be there generation after generation. So if you're named after your grandfather, Kamti, then Grandpa Kamti should have told you where the stones are hidden and how to use them because you're the you're going to be the new company, you know, in in, in the generation. So I haven't yet seen anybody selling their power stones yet. Unlike unlike you know the crystal among among us, where you get this this or that different color stone for this or that uh, purpose. And so I wonder about girls and women. Do they get power stones or no? Uh, no, see, it's pretty patriarchal. Um, girls' names don't come with land, and they don't come with power stones. Although sometimes the woman... So Grandpa Comte never told you anything, but he told your mom something, and so mom can kind of help pass down the, the knowledge. But um, maybe it's changing, but I haven't. Women now are starting to drink kava, especially up in the capital town, Port Vila, uh, and even down in the kind of commercial kava, kava bars crept up on Tana itself. Some women are speaking out in public, which theoretically they shouldn't ever do, but I haven't come across a woman who claims access to these nukwinari, but it might happen, you know. I'm sure some would like it. Okay. Wow, so fascinating. And so what other traditions are there? So the power stones and what else 
has a certain kind of power. Well, these, you know, anthropologists distinguish Polynesian chiefs from the kind of Melanesian big man leaders. And that in the Polynesian islands, that's Hawaii, Tahiti, you know, Samoa, Tonga, Cook Islands, um, chiefly titles come down through kinship. You inherit it from that. It's a, sometimes more complicated or whatever. They have titles on Tana, but everybody's got one. So it's like everybody's a chief, basically. Um, so the only way you, I'm talking men, the only way that men uh, become important, politically important, is that they either have big families or they have messages that they can attract other people by spreading. If your father was a leader, uh, doesn't mean you're going to be one, you know, unlike some of the other, other places in the Pacific. So people spend a lot of time organizing. So they're great organizers. So they organize various kinds of religious message that they like to spread around. Um, but they also um, are really good at um, these uh, big pig, pig exchange ceremonies, basically. So the other thing, besides the volcano, but what attracts tourism when they like tourists because they bring money. Whenever somebody's got the energy to organize it, there's these, there's these huge pig-killing dance festivals that happen maybe every couple of years, if you're lucky, and people come down and various dance teams um, on the host side, the guest side perform, and there may be a hundred, hundred, hundred something pigs that get killed at the end of it, and then it's all reversed. Where if you've got a pig, you know, a month later, you've got to give, give one back. So that's, they have these spectacular exchange ceremonies that are still ongoing. The Spiturians tried to get rid of them, but um, never succeeded. But every year, those are occasional, but regularly there are um, more local exchanges between families that are key to the big one is the circumcision of sons, and they circumcise their boys at five, six, seven, or eight years old. And there's a big exchange of stuff between the father's family and his brother-in-law, basically the wife's brother's family, the wife's family where she came from. And then there's an all-night dance, or it used to be an all-night dance, so dance in the daytime now. An exchange of um, food and pigs and mats and baskets and cloth and blankets. And nowadays, some money. And they also do those exchanges at other life cycle events. So, at, um, if you want to, sometimes at a child's first word, at marriage, death, the same families that are united by marriage have to get together and exchange goods. And then there's a, a dance that everybody attends. And it's people put on their what passes anymore as traditional clothing. It's, it's these bark skirts for women wrap around cloth or lava lava suitors for men, although they used to wear penis wrappers. There's one group of villages on the island that went back to penis wrappers. Uh, a National Geographic photographer wanted better pictures in the late 60s and convinced them that they could attract tourists if they were, went back to traditional clothing, and they have, and, and they do. Uh, but most people, were, most guys would just put on a like a lava lava a wrap around cloth. And then they'll, you know, They'll dance and they'll sing. And that, that's a, both a local attraction that people like to go to those parties. And, uh, the tourists will show up too sometimes. So they've, and that's what they call custom. So it's 
it's still what anthropologists call sister exchange marriage. I can't marry you unless one of my sisters marries your brother, basically. And then there's these life cycle exchanges between families. There are their power stones. There's the occasional nokoyari, these big, big killing festivals. Then there's strong from, you know, this social movement, which also has a Friday night, or used to, had some trouble back in the year 2000, and it's kind of split up into factions. But Friday night, um, there's a dance every Friday night for John Fromm, and the tourists will show up for that too sometimes. So part of their custom, they've commercialized, you know. They used to, when I went there back in 1978 for the first time, people were still making money off of drying coconut meat and selling that. You um oil factories in Singapore and Europe to make into cheap oil. Nobody makes money off of coconut anymore. So they've tried coffee plantations, but they only minimally succeeded. So it's really tourism that brings cash. And starting in 08, 09 or something, New Zealand and then Australia started guest worker programs. So Many of the younger men are off in New Zealand or Australia working for three months, six months, picking grapes and apples and kiwi fruits, theoretically earning money that they'll bring back and um, buy a used truck with or build a cement brick house with or prepare to get married or something. So some 10,000 or so of the 300,000 Vanuatu citizens are off in Australia and New Zealand right now working on farms. Okay, so a number of things. And I, I want to go back to a couple of things, but also I noticed something that you said, which was really interesting to me, about how there's going to be an exchange of items for different occasions, including a child's first word or first words. That's fascinating to me. I wish actually there was more of a celebration about that does that is that because there is the oral tradition and that words are are important and speaking words are important what is that about yeah speech is really important especially if you want to become a a somebody um and until a kid talks i don't really call it a child it's something like subject so until the child can say something and they don't think you know they they love children uh, it doesn't officially become a human, basically, until it can talk. Um, and not many people will exchange very much at a child's first word. The big ones are boy circumcision, sometimes first menstruation for girls, although that's up to the family. When a boy shaves for the first time, often there's an exchange. And then marriage is still really important. And then death, basically. Uh, but yeah, um, there's a word for a kid that doesn't talk, which means a little talk, little thing that doesn't talk yet. But I think you're right. Until they got writing with the missionaries, uh, they were oral societies, and uh, speech was really important as a definer of identity. Mm-hmm. I wonder about kids who are not able to speak and what happens to them. I think their lives are a little better now, but I mean, they like kids, and uh, there are a few deaf people on the island, and. Families develop their own kind of sign language. And I don't, this is something I haven't ever studied. I don't know how common across the island or even across the country these signs are, or whether they're just 
completely familial that every family will create signs. And um, the the couple of deaf people I knew were really good lip readers too, but they have a hard time getting married. For example, they're always kind of second class people because they can't speak. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's too bad. But I, yeah, I hope I hope you're right. I hope it has become easier for them uh, as there's more awareness about why that happens or how that can happen and what it means about a person and what it doesn't. Also. So I'm wondering, you mentioned John Frum again, and that there's something that uh, happens every Friday night, which shows how there the tradition there, the connection to this created character is alive and well, really still flourishing to a great degree. And I, I wonder if you have a sense about why this has had such sticking power when other things haven't. And is it that the community has really rallied around this mythical figure, or is there something about the stories that are told about him that really speak to people in their heart? What do you think it is? Yeah, I don't really have a firm answer. I mean, it's shown from now on to maybe the fourth generation, so it's been going since the late 1930s. Uh, unlike most of these movements that come and go, not just run from, but cargo cults. By the 50s, people were saying, cargo cult won't die. <laughs> so it thought it, it was so stupid. I mean, the, these are the colonialists looking back at it, looking at it, that nobody could believe in this kind of stuff anyway. So a little bit of education and people will realize the folly of their ways. But then these cults kept going and going, and uh, they didn't disappear. You know, in, specific ones would disappear, but people's energy in being anti-colonial basically kept going and going. It was not much of a surprise, but there was a complaint that cargo calls won't die. And a few of them haven't. I mean, there are about four or five ones in New Guinea, Salmons, and Pauwatu that, as I said, have become churches and parties. And whether it's just intelligent planning among, you know, the prophets, how they can be replaced and somebody's going to take over when they get arrested or they die or, or whatever. Um, but then it's not just good leadership, it's it's uh, people's desires for change or to hear the message haven't faded either. So as long as somebody's hearing John Farnham's voice and there are enough people who want to get the, the newest revelation, then, um, yeah, they'll gather around to hear what's what's going on. And whether, you know, the John Farnham message is, whether life has been so bad on Tana that people are, you know, eager to hear anything or whether the message has been spot on that, you know, it's speaking to people's uh, desire for change. So it keeps going. It's, it's, who knows? It's changed. I mean, if you go to town and say, oh, I'm here to visit the cargo cultists, some people will say, welcome. And some people will say, oh, we were never cargo cultists. I mean, this is just an old term. These horrible, horrible anthropologists or somebody, you know, labeled it with. John Fromm appeared in the nick of time not to bring us tin peaches and jeeps and refrigerators or whatever. He appeared to save tradition. So that's that's been the more recent message. But if it wasn't for John Fromm, our custom, our traditions would be totally, our culture would be wiped out. Um, but thank God John Fromm showed up. And um, 
reminded us of the importance of our ancestral ways is what what they'll say nowadays but many of them will say nowadays and that's a powerful message too and people as i said they revalue tradition so everybody thinks custom is a good thing not everybody but a lot of people think uh, my traditions my culture is perfect it's brilliant and you know thank goodness for john Fram for coming to us and uh, reminding us that we need to um, go back to it incredible it's so it's so powerful the the wish for that to be true and also it sounds like the timing of it all was so powerful just in the nick of time like that sometimes people will ask me what kind of person let's say gets involved in cultic thinking or cultic group and i will often say that it it is a what question like i can answer the question about what kind of person even though there isn't just one kind of person but it's a when question a lot of the time and someone is open to that message or needing the promise of this or needing to believe or feeling isolated and needing to connect in a way that they didn't just a year before. Something happening in the world, something that makes them feel um, unsteady, unsafe, and that they need something to kind of hold on to, an anchor, you know? It sounds like this played a role as well in how much people needed this message yeah that was always my question i mean it's clearly about desire so you desire some change in your life or you desire a jeep or a refrigerator so i mean if you're thinking of power structures the real problem is to explain why we want what we want and what are those ones mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and if you control what people want you can control them i think Wow. Oh, that's such a powerful line. Let's talk a little bit more about that. If you can control what people want, then you can control them. So what have you seen here that connects us to that idea? If you're a total relativist anthropologist, which I sometimes try try not to be, um, you think that, you know, there's a Maslow pyramid of needs and there are these natural needs and natural desires. And if you've got one level, you can go up to the next level or whatever. And they're just inbuilt. Right, they come out of being human. But if you're a kind of a suspicious relativist anthropologist, you'd think that you know these are just cultural appreciations. And if you belong to a different culture, a different tradition, a different history, what you want maybe not what everybody wants, right? So that there are universal human desires, although you think there would be some. How growing up do we, you know, learn to be capitalist consumers? Right. And then everyone wants to look at advertising and and uh, the way that identities get constructed by position and why do I need these things, right? And if I don't get these things, my life is going to be, you know, ruined. And so, you know, is desire infinite or is it finite? And if I was a good Buddhist, you know, my goal i think would to squash all of my desires right that's going to make me happy so that the goal of life is to want nothing right and that's where the the path toward nirvana but if i was a good buddhist the uh, american economy would collapse basically because i i would have enough love and have enough things right i would i wouldn't need any more Every, everything would be requited nothing would be unrequited <laughs> So if you're suspicious, you would say that there's something in our in our culture, not kind of in our culture that uh, makes us believe in unlimited wants. 
right? Unlimited desires. And it's never possible to the, to achieve everything you want in life. That if you ever achieved everything you wanted in life, you would stop being a real person, a real American person. That your goal as a good American is constant personal development to become better and more wise or whatever every day to be a what a lifelong learner, right? So it's got to be lifelong. It can never stop. Uh, but I think that's a pretty American cultural perspective, which probably uh, is also historical. I mean, it's a recent one. If we can go back a few hundred years, uh, humans weren't like that. Or we could go someplace else like Vanuatu. People are becoming like that, but um, they weren't like that back in the 19th century. So that's the real question. What makes us believe in unobtainable desires, but and also believe in the duty of trying to obtain them. Huh, right. So interesting. It's a very human thing because we've all been at different times in our lives where we've been open to wanting or needing something and then come to find out maybe we didn't so much, but you felt yeah, you, you get it. It's okay. What's right. next? What's next? Right. Yeah. What's next? Exactly. Exactly. And so I know we just have a few moments left, but I wanted to to hand the floor over to you to if there are more stories that you thought would be really interesting to share things that would give us kind of a picture of this the traditions the people just something that is different for these listeners to to learn about that you've experienced well not just still the anthropologists call it kinship society so the most important people in your life are your relatives basically which is a good thing and a bad thing it's a good thing in that there's always somebody who's going to look after you and who you're going to look after, but it's a bad thing in that you can't escape. Um, you can't run off to a town and uh, become anonymous. But because it's a kinship society, it's it's very people are really good at um, at caring and at uh, they get into fights, but they're really good at um, at least temporarily solving you know disputes and issues that they might have. So like Thanksgiving coming up, you're going to have a big fight with your uncles or your aunties or whatever. They're probably better than some of us would be at uh, maintaining good relationships. And part of it is um, giving presents to each other. Well, they're constantly killing a pig and giving somebody a pig or inviting people to share a meal or whatever. So, And we do that too, of course. But um, we have more of a belief in the importance of the individual, I think, than uh, people in kinship societies do. So, you know, it's Got a light side and a dark side. I mean, the light side is that you always know who you are, right? You're always a member. You've got a name. You've got a place. But the dark side is you can't escape it. So if it's driving you crazy, it's really hard for me to go someplace else and, you know, to your own person. But because, you know, Vanuatu is so kind of like that, it's a wonderful place to visit. So people who want who want to spend some money and go, you know, have some island holiday off, and they go to Fiji, or they go to Tahiti. I would send to Vanuatu, which is just a fantastic place culturally and linguistically, and and um, naturally with you know volcanoes and uh, beautiful beautiful nature, you know, lots of. And it was colonized by Britain and the French, so the food is good. <laughs> And it's also um, where kava was originally domesticated a couple of thousand years ago. So if there are any kava things, you can go drink real kava, you know, in the place place where it um, 
where people um, first uh, cultivated and domesticated it. Wow. This is all so intriguing and so interesting to get a glimpse into all of this. And I so appreciate this. And if I could push a recent book. Please, please. Yes. Published. I read it for students. So anybody hopefully can read it without a hope. Not a lot of terrible anthropology in it. Well, it's anthropological, but it's called Ten of Times, Islanders in the World. And it's uh, UH Press uh, made it available as a free download, so you don't have to spend any money on it. If you don't mind reading online, you can uh, Google Tana Times and go to the University of Hawaii site and uh, download the book. So it's got a, it's, it tells about John Fram, it tells about the volcano, it tells about Tana culture, it tells about the history of the place and what people are doing nowadays too. So I've been going back and forth for 40 years, so it's like everything I learned over 40 years, I try to make sense of and uh, say something in my book. And there's also a book on cargo gold if you're interested in, a book I co-authored in Kava as well, if anybody's interested. So Yale University Press published it as the Pacific Drug, but then it got sold off to a kind of suspicious uh, natural foods press, and they republished a paperback called Kava, the Pacific Elixir. The cargo gold book is just called Cargo Gold, and my Summary of anything anybody wants to know about Tana is called Tana Times. Nice. Really nice. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thanks a lot. One more thing before you go. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much to Lamont Lindstrom for such an interesting conversation. Sometimes these podcast episodes take us into uh, new territory. And knowing, as I talked about on the show, that there were so many listeners in Vanuatu, we just had to figure out what that was about and what the interest is. So, If you are from that part of the world, really far away from where I am now, please let me know what your interest is and if it is based on what we were talking about on the show today or if there's some other interest, some other need. I'm just very curious about it because you wonder why suddenly there are so many listeners in a certain part of the world when there have been these cults, named, uh, for lack of a better term, the cargo cults that have been around for quite some time. So again, I'm always curious when there is a spike in interest and what is happening there. So please let us know. One of the things that Lamont talked about that was so interesting is that these kind of groups seem to do well when there are areas of people who believe in things that are mystical, where they are potentially looking for a leader, where they're looking for a sign. He was saying that they don't like coincidences in that area or that part of the world so much. And so when you have this feeling that there are these things called coincidences and you don't like them all that much, that means that you're going to be finding meaning in things where there may or may not be 
And you're going to be finding a reason why things are occurring when there may or may not be a reason. The danger of doing that is that there is a correlation versus causation issue that arises where sometimes people will think that if two things happen at the same time, let's say, or two things that are similar happen at the same time, or two things that seem kind of connected happen at the same time that one has caused the other, like uh, how if someone made Mm, let's say somebody else angry or they broke a law in a particular culture and then suddenly the volcano started to billow smoke or have ash or lava spilling out of it. It could be that that happened on the same day or within the same week and there would be some causation, some correlation attributed to that when they could be And from my thinking, they are completely disconnected from each other and a mere coincidence. One of the other things that Lamont talked about is this idea of power stones, which was very interesting that people have these power stones that are theirs, that belong to them. And when you are attributing certain magical powers to things within nature, then You also have the signs of a more mystical, more spiritual community where somehow these mm, things that just happen in nature are given some sort of meaning, are given some abilities, and you then might think that you can use them to protect yourself in some way or to have as a talisman, to have as some sort of symbol of strength. And for other people, they would just be rocks that you would pass by. The idea also that each person who is born there, males in particular, are given so many things just by virtue of their birth that are about power, that are about protection, that are something spiritual, is also a sign, I think, to show about the the community and how much it matters to give the next generations a sense of connection to the belief system and to the land. One of the important points, though, that I want to be able to come back to is this idea that if you can control what people want, you can control people more. And I think what happens is that when you control what people want, You can define what they want. You can use social pressure to create a want, not dissimilar from advertising, not dissimilar from sort of the life of the teenager also. When they see one person wearing something in particular, then they feel they want it. But what happens too is that within the media, within any kind of advertising, within marketing, and within groups and cultic groups, you can not only control what people want, but you can convince them about what they need. And then once you've convinced them about what they need in order to look good if it's marketing, in order to feel good if it's also marketing, or in order to 
have a sense of peace or safety or to be able to live forever, whatever the belief system is, you can cultivate so much dependency on you if you are in this place of giving people not only what they want, but what you may have convinced them that they need. People will walk around not knowing that they have a need for something or a perceived need for something until they see a billboard about something that suddenly they need or a commercial for it. Or again, someone they are spending time with who has something or is wearing something or believes in something and is able to, by virtue of kind of looking good in it or seeming happy, or just because they're good talkers and they're really good at getting you involved in that way of thinking, they can convince you that you need it too, or you can convince yourself that you need it too. So when you get involved in something, when you get involved in any kind of cultic group, be mindful of checking in with yourself to see if along the way, you have come to feel that you want many more things and that you even need many more things and that these are the things that the people in charge have told you that you want, have told you that you need. And think back on who you were before and if you wanted or needed those things before. It's a good way to check in with yourself, to get grounded and to see if someone has cultivated in you this greater amount of need and want. And then, of course, within a cultic system, they will be your only source for receiving what it is that you want or what it is that you suddenly are convinced you need. Cargo cults, or whatever you want to call them, are so symbolic of people attributing magic to things that may or may not be magical. And it's not for us to say if that has merit or not, the belief has merit or not, because it's very real for a lot of people. And I'm sure has also been a source of strength and comfort during difficult times. What I do, though, is I look at it, again, not with judgment, but just to understand the human condition, that when you are in a faraway place, when you are marooned somewhere potentially, and suddenly you see something, you see a ship or you see mm, uniforms, you see helmets, you might see weapons, you might see things that are symbolic to you of people who have strength, people who have the resources to buy these sorts of things. And then the possessions, the symbols take on great meaning. And it's not for us to look at it any differently or try to take it away from them, but it is to understand that in every place on this earth, there are people searching and there are people needing to connect and there are people needing to believe in something greater than them. And this is yet another sign of that. I would love to be able to learn more about these groups in these areas. So, again, if you know more about it or if you live there, And if you have been a part of any sort of worship or connection to these kinds of symbols, please be in touch and teach us more. Thank you so much to Lamont Lindstrom and for all of the work that he's done and the books that he's written. It is really, really fascinating. Take good care. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. 
please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrinationpodcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.